Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Star Trek retrospective series. Today we are discussing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Brad. And like I said, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan came out June 4th, 1982, just three years after the first film. And if you haven't listened to the first installment in a retrospective series, then I recommend you go ahead and click pause on this podcast, then go back and check out that first review. And also, if you're looking for some more reviews, movie commentaries, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, or if you want to do a Q&A with us, then go ahead and head on over to our Patreon page. And just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you get some great content. That money doesn't go into our pockets. That money goes into building up Silver Screen Guide to make it a better experience for you all around. That money really does help us, and you get some great exclusive content as well. Don't forget to subscribe on Facebook and Twitter, and you can even do that through email, through our website. All of those links are in the description below. They're very easy to find. Star Trek II was directed by Nicholas Mayer, and he would actually go on to write the screenplay for the fourth and sixth film, which I found to be pretty interesting. He's not, as you can tell, the whole cast and crew, aside from, well, I guess aside from most of the cast, the cast is returning, but we do have a new crew. Uh, Jack B. Sowards did do the screenplay, but also Nicholas Meyer did some as well, and also James Horner scored this film. Jerry Goldsmith did not do the score for this film, unlike the last one. And funny enough, Jerry Goldsmith scored the movie Alien, which came out the same year Star Trek The Motion Picture, actually. That was a big year for him. It was, and big year for sci-fi. And he, James Horner, would score Aliens ah, a couple years later. How interesting. Yeah. Now, currently on IMDb, Star Trek II holds a 7.7, which is a big step up from the previous film's 6.4. It certainly was a step up for me, and I think all Star Trek fans were excited to see that they were going to carry the the series on. You know, after that first movie, being the original Star Trek fan, we all loved the fact that they did it, but then we're disappointed by the, you know, like we talked about in our last retrospective, but this one, way better, and we were excited to see that it was carrying on. Critics thought so as well, considering 89% of critics gave this a favorable review. As compared to last time, only 42%. That's a big difference. It's a big jump. <laughs> and same on Metascore, which is another critic uh, gauge. 67 out of 100 on Metascore, whereas the previous film was 48. So as you can tell, this is a big jump in a lot of people's opinion. It's a large step up. And I also wanted to note this film was bumped up to a PG rating, and probably for good reason, considering that pretty grotesque scene of the worms crawling into their ears, which gets us every time. That's hard for me to watch every time. It just it really is difficult. It's, it's it, They did a great job, you know, cinematically and making it look so real. The visual effects are also a big improvement over last time. I was very impressed, and we did not watch a version that had been redone or anything. We saw the original theatrical version, just like audiences would have seen in 1982. 
Now, the budget was a lot smaller than last time. As I said last time, the budget was supposed to be $15 million, but it ballooned to $45 million. This time, they kept it at $11 million. They got people that could get the job done, and that required kicking Gene Roddenberry kind of out of the production. <laughs> they said, you kind of were causing lots of problems last time with all of these script rewrites and you just kept coming up with ideas and it it was really difficult on the budget and on the box office last time we'll consult you when we need you i'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute but domestically at the box office it did very well uh for it grossed 78.9 million dollars in today's numbers that's 241.8 million especially with a budget that small and some people say worldwide it grossed 97 million it didn't quite exactly get the numbers as the first movie it came in just below it mm. um, which doesn't surprise me because if the first movie isn't well received then the sequel is not going to attract as many people whereas right. for example with rambo the first blood movie that did great so the sequel did even better at the box right. office opening weekend not a surprise it was number one and it went up against uh for number one steven spielberg's poltergeist yeah it was huge and a movie called hanky panky which i'm not familiar with. i don't remember that one either so the top five for that weekend was star trek 2 rocky 3 poltergeist hanky panky and conan the barbarian interesting i remember all of them but hanky panky yeah they had some solid ones that Everybody still remembers today, and movies I've seen and have on my shelf, except for Hanky Panky. That one didn't stand the test of time, (laughs) apparently. So, overall, how does it rank economically in the series? Well, adjusting for inflation, because there are newer movies out, it is the fifth highest grossing of the 13. So, as I mentioned, Roddenberry was out, but that's not without him working on his own script for the movie. As soon as the first movie wrapped up, he was writing a script for a sequel, and it would have consisted of the Enterprise traveling back in time to set right a corrupted timeline after Klingons used the Guardian of Forever to prevent the assassination of JFK. That actually sounds intriguing to me. It does. I I can't even know why the Klingons would want to prevent the assassination of JFK. And then the Enterprise would say, wait, you can't do that. He does need to be assassinated. It sounds interesting, but Paramount said, no, we're not going with your overly complicated ideas. (laughs) Especially after the last time. (laughs) Especially after the last time, which got far too convoluted. They said, we need to go for something more straightforward. And William Shatner put it this way. Ron Berry got kicked up to the attic of executive consultant. Executive consultant. That's a great title. (laughs) So they did bring in a new Paramount producer named Harve Bennett. And he was given reins over the series despite never seeing an episode. That seems to be consistent. That's a bold move. Um... And that was the case with Robert Wise directing last time. He had right. never seen a Star Trek episode, but they do hand the reins over to people. Just because they haven't seen an episode, they say, we know you can get the film in under budget and get the right people on board to create a good film. And to his credit, he did rewatch the entire original series. Good. And what he, what he realized from the first film, the first film lacked a real strong villain. It right, lacked exactly. a villain. Exactly. So of all the villains of the original series, he thought 
Khan, Nuni, and Singh would be perfect to bring back. He was an intriguing villain. He said, let's explore his character more. What's happened to him after 15 years? If you were a pretty, pretty, like, memorable diehard fan of the original series, you might recall his character. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't know who he was, really, save for what Kirk kind of brings up. So in a way, it's a continuation, but I can tell they're trying to reboot it in a way as to create a new story for them. Right. So Nicholas Meyer was brought on to direct, and he was also brought on to fix a lot of script issues, which he did do fix the script uncredited and for no pay. Wow. Um, he, now, he got paid for directing, but not for his work on the script. And the reason the script is so kind of cohesive as it is, that's thanks to him. Now, one of the earliest working titles was actually Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, but that would later be used for the sixth film. Instead, the title of the movie was originally going to be The Vengeance of Khan. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Not like The Wrath of Khan. But since the new Star Wars film coming out was going to be called the Revenge of the Jedi, hmm. which also changed its name to The Return of the Jedi. Right. At the time, they said, let's not go there. That sounds exactly like the new Star Wars one, pretty much. So they changed it to The Wrath of Khan, which is a such a memorable Great title. title. And once again, I'm giving you a very truncated version of the production history. I do encourage you to go read it online. It's a long history, but it's worth reading because it's really fascinating how the Star Trek movies come about. They always have, it seems like, ten different ideas to choose from, all of which I think would make at least, if not interesting movies, then unique television episodes that I think would be cool to see and which we'll probably never get to see. Um, I noticed they always involve they always involve time travel. They really want to do time travel, and if I'm not mistaken, we're going to get that here in just a couple more sequels. We will see the mm. Enterprise travel back in time, but we will be talking about that here in the coming weeks. But the biggest takeaway, listeners, I want you to know is that this film is nevertheless a sequel to the events depicted in a season one. Episode 22, Space Seed, which aired February 16th, 1967, 15 years prior to this movie. That's something I never really knew or understood until I did the research on this, that Khan was already a villain in the TV series, at least one, a one-time villain. Now, we're, now, Brad, were you yeah. familiar with that at all when you saw the movie when it came out? Or did you go back to theaters to see this when it came out? Or were you kind of... Eh, this the first one kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. It wasn't as great as I thought it would be. No, I was excited to go back to see the second one. Number one, because The Wrath of Khan was, A, a great title. B, I do remember the character being a part of the original series in that episode. Uh, mostly because he was a very memorable actor. Ricardo Montalban went on to be a very, well, certainly for television, a very A-list actor in the 1970s all through the 70s. And his uh, famous series, uh, Fantasy Island, a big one as the 80s rolled on. I think it was in the early 80s. Can't remember the exact years of that run. But Ricardo Montalban was a great actor. So I was very interested. And then the title really drew me in because it sounded like there was going to be some great conflict, which was what was missing in the first one. Absolutely. That is a good point to make is the title is going to probably draw people in as well. Not to mention at this point, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, Darth Vader had become such a central villain, Star Trek needed their own they did. 
Darth Vader go against or even Emperor per se. They needed a great villain for the protagonists to go up against. And I'm sure in 1982, there would have been some knowledge of Khan already being a villain and then bringing back the villain of Khan. I don't know if they had as strong of movie news, maybe it just on the regular news, they would have mentioned it. But coming to it here in 2019, and I would say even a few years prior, I would say that knowledge is is not as well known. I would say. It seems to be more so lost on me because when I did the research, I was surprised to find that out. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, which I recommend you don't have it spoiled for you, I recommend you go and watch it right now. It is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. That's how we saw it. That's a widely available option. Otherwise, you can rent it at your favorite retailer. So once you do watch the film, come back here and click play and we will be ready to talk about it. Lieutenant Savick, played by Kirstie Alley in her first big screen debut, is captain of the USS Enterprise, and she is on a rescue mission to save the ship Kobayashi Maru. She commands the crew to enter the Klingon neutral zone, which causes the Enterprise to be badly attacked, leaving most of the crew dead. Except that was all a simulation overseen by Admiral James T. Kirk, played by William Shatner. It was meant to test the moral character of the crew. Despite the situation being a no-win scenario, Kirk is the only trainee to ever outsmart the simulation. In another part of the galaxy, the USS Reliant is searching for viable planets to test a new tool known as Genesis that could hopefully reshape a planet's environment to make it suitable for life. On board the Reliant, Chekhov, played by Walter Koenig, and Captain Terrell, played by Paul Winfield, decide they should beam down to the planet SETI Alpha 5 to scout out the planet. Once on the planet, they realize it is inhabited by none other than the Enterprise crew's old nemesis, Khan Noonien Singh, reprised by Ricardo Montalban. See, 15 years prior, the Enterprise found the ship Botany Bay floating in space, On board the ship, they found Khan and his genetically enhanced comrades had been floating in hypersleep for 200 years, roughly since the 1990s during the eugenics wars. Khan tried to take over the Enterprise, so Kirk exiled him and his fellow crew to SETI Alpha 5. Except SETI Alpha 6 had since exploded, which caused Chekhov's confusion as to his belief that they were landing on SETI Alpha 6. Khan and his crew have been living on a wasted planet. Seizing the opportunity for revenge, especially since Khan blames his wife's death on Kirk, he places a disgusting parasitic creature into the ears of Chekhov and Terrell to make them robots of his will. Reliant, now under the control of Khan, travels to the space station Regula 1, where the Genesis device is held in hopes of using it to create a new world where Khan is the ruler. Also on Regula 1 is Kirk's former lover, Dr. Carol Marcus, played by B.B. Besh, and her son David, played by Merritt Buttrick. The Enterprise responds to Regula's distress signal, but are ambushed by Khan. Kirk tricks Khan using the Reliance shields to lower, giving the Enterprise the time to retaliate and damage the Reliant in turn. In an intense game of cat and mouse, Kirk and Khan keep one-upping each other, until finally Kirk mortally wounds Khan, by nearly eviscerating his ship. After he's lost, Khan activates the Genesis in order to take his foe down with him. 
Once the Genesis activates, a new planet will be born and the Enterprise decimated unless their warp drive can be repaired in time. Kirk realizes he has more than his crew to look out for once he finds out David is actually his son. Seeing what Kirk has to live for, Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy, travels to the engine room where he enters heavy radiation to fix the warp drive, knowing full well this means his death. Spock saves the Enterprise but dies soon after, telling Kirk not to grieve because his decision was a logical one. A space burial is held for Spock as his coffin is shot out into space, landing on the new planet Genesis, which has life-creating power as credits roll. So one of the good aspects of this film I want to talk about, and that is much appreciated, is we have a tangible villain with a unique look that does present, immediately presents a real threat Whereas last time, it was this cloud that could shoot beams and made ominous noises. That was it. Mm -hmm. So Khan has become a not only kind of a cultural icon, I think, that people think of. When you think of Star Trek, you think mm -hmm. Khan, the right. Wrath of Khan. You can hear Captain Kirk with that inimitable... Gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's become a famous line and scene. And it, it was well played out in the movie but i really like that i was watching some of the original episode and khan has this kind of jet black slicked back hair and he's very tan and i like how they kind of bring that over into the movie where his hair is a lot longer but it's more so gray he's still in shape although i don't think his chest is real it doesn't look real to me it just it just looked a little too perfect <laughs> it did it looks a little odd but nevertheless, he is very ruthless as this, he's out for revenge, he's bloodthirsty, and I think he plays off of Kirk fairly well. And in some ways, it seems like he can actually outsmart Kirk, and he does a few times. And I think that's probably the movie's strongest point is them constantly one-upping each other, where you think Kirk is going to be stranded, or Khan is actually going to win. How is this going to play out? And it does come at great cost for the both of them. That was great drama. The first time that I saw it, I can remember just you didn't really know how it was going to. I mean, you kind of know that that you know the good guy's going to win, but you don't know how, and you just you don't know. It's a, it's a feature film. Will there be more? We don't know. But uh, that was very good drama. And I'm sure that is something audiences were thinking at the time. Is could this be? Kirk's end or somebody's end right. because Khan is such a formidable villain, whereas now we know there's 13 other films. Right. <laughs> I'm not I'm not too worried about Kirk coming back because he's on the cover of the rest of right. them. Um, the one thing that I did find to be a very gutsy move, which I'm sure shocked a lot of not only Star Trek fans, but people in the audience, another really cultural icon is Spock. Yes, and very Spock much so dies in this movie and his death seemingly is final save for maybe a glimmer of hope there at the end well i think in in a uh, in a retrospective you were real you were really good to point that out to me because i could remember back in the original airing of the film we were shocked when spock died because he's iconic to the star trek series you know it would be hard to say any less than Captain Kirk. I mean, those two are just the icons of the series in, in great ways. And so for him to die, it was like, wow, 
where is this ever going to go from here? That, that really shocked us. And I didn't have that. Wow, I can remember the first time I did not have that thinking that, well, it's a planet that's regenerative and it's going to maybe there's this little hope. We were just sitting there in shock thinking, Spock's dead. Yeah, it would have been much more impactful, I'm sure, back then because the the relation people had was much closer to the character, whereas the, si- right. the series has been off the air for right. so long. But nevertheless, it's still surprising. And I had actually forgotten this because I had seen this movie many years ago, many, many years ago mm-hmm. with you. Um, but I had nevertheless right. forgotten this was the movie where Spock uh, yes. sacrifices himself to save the rest of the Enterprise. And I think making the stakes so high, because that's something we talked about in the last movie, they kept saying, Earth is doomed, yet nevertheless giving us any fear of that actually being true. Hmm. This actually felt true that somebody was, something has to give. Right. Somebody's got to die, or and uh, Khan does die. Right. Which is interesting that they would create such a popular, iconic villain and kill him off in the same movie. It's like creating a Darth Vader and then, oh, Darth Vader's dead. (laughs) One run and he's over. (laughs) One run and he's over. Um, As as far as we know, because future sequels, you never know. You never know. They could, you know, do something out of out of time and out of order they could bring him back but i do like that they did kill off spock that's the gutsy move star trek needed and it, to, really it didn't need to play it safe like the last movie where right. it was so mundane it didn't take any risks at all and interestingly enough in one of the original scripts spock was supposed to die within the first act of the movie which they wanted to kind of give a janet lee psycho effect which Hitchcock did, and pull the rug out from under us okay. and say they killed off one of the major characters in the beginning? Mm. That that would have really shocked the audiences. That would have. I, I'm not sure how well that would have gone over for the rest uh, of the audiences. I, I can speak for myself. I would have not only been shocked, I would have been angered a little. I just... Because you wouldn't have had enough of him. here. We, everybody loves Spock, you know? And to kill him off in the beginning, you just didn't get enough of him that way. So I think it was... I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't either. It also wouldn't have, I don't believe it would have given Spock enough time to make a meaningful sacrifice. Right. That's a very good point. Even if he did have a sacrifice in the beginning, they don't really go into detail on how he died. Nevertheless, I think audiences would have, like you said, turned on it and felt, Mm -hmm. oh, now they're just trying too hard to get our attention back into the series this sacrifice is earned and the original script was actually leaked so it was leaked out there that spock was going to die in the beginning of this movie so what the director did is he rewrote the script to have spock quote die during the kobayashi maru sequence Hmm, which i remember when we were watching that a few days ago and i said spock can't die here in the beginning and the the whole crew's dead here in the beginning i thought this is unbelievable i can't believe it and they surprised us by it being a training sequence but then in the end he really did have to die that was that was smart of them to well, without the, the without the power of the internet and so much uh, news and everything, I never knew that they leaked that script back then. It would have been a lot harder for people to know. I think probably only people that maybe went to conventions or sure. heard, hung out at comic book shops right. a lot, they yeah. could have heard that news. But today, that would be so easily 
Right, it would be common, disseminated. common news. Yeah. Well, one of the disappointing aspects that I did find with this movie is I felt there wasn't enough exposition as to the character of Khan and his crew. Don't get me wrong, we still do get the exposition, but I'm confused as to all of the all of the Star Trek, the Enterprise crew knows who Khan mm-hmm. is. Because you see Chekhov say, Botany Bay, oh no, what does this mean? And some people back then, you know, if you had watched Star Trek, you would know what this means also. You would be shocked and be like, oh my gosh, they're continuing the Khan storyline. Um, except for me, I didn't know that they were making a sequel to a 15-year-old episode. So I was always confused on Khan because it feels like they've already established his backstory so they're just going to briefly gloss over it and keep rolling into it with the new story that always confused that's a good me. point for a new watcher that's that's a very good point so i if you're able to listeners i would recommend you do watch that episode of Khan. i think that might give you more of a complete experience as to the whole story arc here because you're not getting they okay i appreciate they give us a brief backstory through right. Chekhov saying Kirk exiled him here 15 years ago. That's it. So the episode is easily available to find. I think that would give you more of a coherent view. The other thing is I still somewhat think the second act is a little boring in certain sections where they just stay in their ships. And one ship is disabled, then this one gets the upper hand, then the next ship is disabled, and then they have to go down to the planet, then they're stranded, but... They, no, I, I actually liked that when they tricked him and were able to get back. I just, and I, there's really not much wrong with this film, except Kirk and Khan never actually coming face to face. It kind of bummed me out a bit. Physically face to face. Yeah, we see him on the screen. We but see him I, on the screen where they could see each other. I, I'm not sure if I can visually picture William Shatner getting in a fist fight with <laughs> Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> That's, That's probably why yeah. they didn't go for it, but nevertheless... I didn't want them to just be on ships so far apart. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, did you find anything else that you think they could have improved upon with this movie? Any Anything with the pacing or um, anything, like I said, with the action? I did like the action. I just think that they. I didn't want it to just be grounded onto the ships. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think those are excellent points that you made, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't see anything... It really, really was one of my favorites. So, Brad, what is your rating and recommendation for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? I give it an 8, but a high recommend. Star Trek lovers will love it, and I think it's it's engaging enough that a person who doesn't even know Star Trek would enjoy the movie. Well, I think Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is a major improvement over its predecessor. The villain is solid and one of the more memorable villains in fiction. There's much more action which keeps my interest, and I can see they're taking a page from other sci-fi films such as Alien and Star Wars to bring this nearly 20-year-old franchise into the involving genre. I still don't see this as a great Star Trek film, considering the exposition to Khan's backstory is somewhat confusing, and the film has some slumps towards the end of the second act. Nevertheless, I am recommending this one, with 6 stars out of 10, giving it a mild recommend.
Now, possibly on subsequent viewings, my rating could go up to a 7, and I could find more appreciation with it. I just believe upon, for a newbie first-time viewer, you can enjoy the action, but I think some of the story elements not being as well known to someone who's not as involved in the Star Trek series right. could, could cause some confusion, which I think could take away from some enjoyment. You're too busy trying to figure out, now, who are they to each other? That's a great point. When did this happen? Nevertheless, like I said, once I explore the episode more and some of the other films some more, I think I will appreciate it more. Yeah, and I think uh, that your well, your your analysis is so professional. You do such a great job bringing the uh, all of those points uh, out. And mine's always colored a little bit by uh, nostalgia. You know, it's just for me, it's a it's a it's a little higher recommend just from the nostalgia. I love it so much. But I do think that's important that we have someone who's able to speak to the series coming from more of an association with it from one from when it first came out. And I'm coming to it from I, I was still born in the yeah. 20th century, but kind of having more of a 20th first century mindset where right, right. this series hasn't. Uh, I would say, stuck around as deeply as Star Wars. And also, Star Trek has much more of a history to it than Star Wars. The Star Wars films are fairly straightforward. Yeah, and to tell you how big a Star Trek fan that I really have always been, when Star Wars came out, I was not drawn to it like I am today. It I, probably felt like kind of they were trying to rip off certain elements in yeah. some ways. They yeah. were trying to appeal to you well listeners thank you so much for joining us on our review of star trek to the wrath of khan i encourage you to subscribe now so you will not miss out on next week's review of star trek 3 the search for spock and i'm sure just that title when that title was released people thought but wait spock's dead what he's right. coming back right that's a pretty exciting title it would have intrigued a lot of people, and it intrigues me. I have only vague recollections as to the third film, but I'm pretty excited to see it now that The Wrath of Khan was such a solid film. That kind of restored my faith a little bit. It was a, a great turnaround. Bit. It really was. I'm glad they made a comeback with the series. Um, they started off, they kind of stepped in a pothole in the first one, but they really made a strong showing for the second one and i'm hoping they only continue that from here i'm really hoping that we only have nothing but recommends and they're really good i don't know and especially i'm speaking mostly for the kirk ones and i haven't seen any of the picard ones i have not either i was such a loyal trek originalist that i didn't go into the picard series i'm hoping but i'm anxious good. to yeah, and I'm really hoping that they are solid entries as well. And I do know that one film, before Picard is fully on board, he shares a film with Kirk, which will be kind of cool to see them together. I've never seen it. Well, again, in retrospective, you know, Picard, that series really held its own to do well. In the beginning, I was one of the skeptics. I was like, are you kidding me? You can't improve on Captain Kirk and Spock and all these guys. So why try? And uh, so I was very skeptical, but that's that's part of my nostalgia too. But it did turn out well. It did. And it's they're actually bringing him back for that's, that's exciting. his own new Star Trek yeah, show. I'm actually Picard. very excited about that. That'll be interesting to watch that as well. And that's that'll be the second 
current Star Trek series because they've got Star Trek, I think, Discovery or something. And, of course, there's all those other TV series as well. But nevertheless, it's alive and well. But So it is neat to go back and watch these original movies. So you won't want to miss out on that retrospective journey with us. In the meantime, share this with your friends and family. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. Now, we always have a question at the end of the show. It's in the description, but I'm going to pose it to you right here, listeners. My question is, comparatively between Khan and Darth Vader, which do you think is the more intriguing villain that poses more so kind of an intellectual challenge to each protagonist? Uh, I'm thinking actually Khan. He seems to actually be more of an interesting villain than Darth Vader. Interesting. interesting. What would you say, Brad? Well, again, I'm seeing everything in in, uh, retrospect, but I, I kind of agree with that. There, I re- like you said earlier. I really think Khan could have added even more interest had he not been killed off, because he did make a great villain. I mean, it was somebody Darth Vader was you you couldn't relate to, in you know behind the mask, the respirator, everything. I mean, cool effects. Khan, you just saw the evil side of humanity coming out in uh, in a very intriguing way. Well, listeners, we want to know what you think as well. So don't forget to comment your responses right below on the podcast. You can also comment on Facebook and Twitter over there on our pages. And like I said, you can also subscribe through email. Go on over to our website, and it's right at the top. It's very easy to see. Just click subscribe and just put in your email, and you'll get that every Friday at noon. Brad, thank you for joining me. It's been great fun. Thank you. I'm looking forward to more. I'm looking forward to it as well. Listeners, we will see you next week with Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock.